Hello, and welcome to the Music Teacher Coffee Talk podcast. I'm Carrie. And I'm Tanya. We are both elementary music teachers who love to talk shop, preferably over a steaming cup of coffee, and this is episode 70. Today we are continuing our summer book club by discussing chapters 3 and 4 from Music Education and Social Emotional Learning, The Heart of Teaching Music by Scott N. Edgar. We'll also share some ideas in a new segment we're calling Know Better, Do Better. And in our CODA section, we'll give some specific recommendations of our favorite things in and out of the music room. So grab your beverage of choice and let's get started. And now it's time for our main theme. We are talking about the book, Music Education and Social Emotional Learning, The Heart of Teaching Music by Scott N. Edgar. And um, we need to, before we talk about chapters three and four, we really wanted to address a lot of things that have we've seen um, on social media and other places and things that have been brought to our attention by even specific listeners about this conflict or this um, could be conflict between social emotional learning and the possibility of it including practices in white supremacy. Yes. As a, as a big old, you know, let's not dance around it. Now, I mean, we'll talk about these chapters three and four because I have a lot to say that I came away with in chapters three and four. And my um, summer has been full of a lot of reading and a lot of listening, a lot of listening to black voices in particular. And so this is where my head is right now. And I mean, as a white person, I have the privilege of stepping away from that right, and not thinking or reading or any of that. So I, I'm I'm doing a lot of processing and I'm not sharing a lot of that here on Music Teacher Coffee Talk because, well, sometimes it's appropriate and sometimes it's not. Right. And I really believe that white people need to be talking to other white people to work out a lot of this stuff, that this is not a burden for BBIP, anybody else. This is something us white people need to work through. And there's a lot that I need to work through just like in my own brain. That being said, I did want to highlight some things, and there are several articles that we're going to link to in our notes, and I wanted to highlight some things that could be problematic if you're looking at only social-emotional learning and not including other things, right? Right. So all, all of this to say, I, I keep... I keep interrupting my sentences. Where my brain is at right now, as I'm reading this book, these these uh, problems or could be problems are very apparent to me because as I'm reading, I'm like, oh, what about this? But what about that? This is not mentioned here and that's a problem. Okay, so I'm going to quote from an article called Applying an Equity Lens to Social, Emotional, and Academic Development. So um, one of the authors of this article is Dina Simmons and she's got lots of fantastic TED talks and articles about teaching and equity and social emotional learning and she mentions five burial barriers that could contribute to an equitable an equitable access to high quality SEL education and they are poverty exclusionary discipline practices and policies in school lack of trauma-informed practices in school, implicit bias in school staff, and educator, educator stress and burnout. And when I read those things, and I'm thinking about our COVID times, and I'm thinking about right now, as I look at social media, anytime I look at anything, um, all of the people in my world are freaking out about going back to school yeah. Because this is right now we're recording in a time where less than a week ago it was announced that we will be going back to school 100% and not a lot of mention has been made of protective things. And so this is our district specifically. This is our district specifically. I mean, but other districts are in the same boat. Yes. For sure. So when I'm look, thinking about poverty, exclusion, which COVID definitely has shined a light about inequity. Oh, yeah. Yes. Exclusionary discipline practices and policies in school. Wow. Well, how will our COVID restrictions, like, further make that problematic? Lack of trauma-informed practices in school. And trauma, we are going through trauma, and, and it's not... My trauma is nothing compared to the kids that are in my school 
who already have trauma and I have no idea what's been going on with them in these last few months. So, oh my gosh, if we ever needed trauma-informed practices, now would be the time. But, and here we go, implicit bias in school staff. So if that's going on in a school staff, and not just one teacher, but the whole staff has to be really on board and willing to look at that, and educator stress and burnout. I mean, we're in like a perfect storm for all of this. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, my takeaway from reading this article and some of the others that we'll mention is, you know, SEL in itself is not a cure. It's not that, you know, magic bullet that's going to make all the problems disappear. If, if all of these other issues are going on in the background, which in most schools, you've got at least one of those, if not all of them. Exactly. So I think the important part is just to, to understand that the, the root of, of SEL is it comes from a positive place. But without these other things in the forefront and the realization of all these other things going on and taking proactive steps to address these things, SEL will work. And speaking of those proactive steps, because I don't want to leave it with, here's all these problems. Right. Because this article does mention some opportunities to overcome these barriers. And again, I'm quoting from this article, school racial and socioeconomic integration initiatives. That's huge. Um, Restorative justice practices for school discipline. I know in our district that has already been going on. Trauma-informed system interventions, which is something that I haven't had any experience with that I think every school needs. Culturally culturally competent and equity literate educators, which is something I'm working on on my own. And SEL and mindfulness programming to support students and teachers. Um, I have a little bit of experience in mindfulness and we'll talk more, but isn't that interesting how that is considered something that we need to bring in to our education. Right. Um, Another really great article by Dr. Dina Simmons is why we can't afford whitewashed social emotional learning. And we'll, we'll link to that. And in this article in particular, she mentions this phrase that I've seen thrown around a lot Mm -hmm. that SEL can be um, white supremacy with a hug. Right. And the reason why I say it's thrown around is because I feel like sometimes this, this is misquoted. I've seen people say, SEL is white supremacy with a hug, which maybe people believe that. But that's not what Dr. Simmons is saying. She's saying it very well can be. It yeah. can turn into this this policing thing if it's not implemented correctly. I think so, if you're looking at it in isolation, then most definitely systems being what they are already, yeah, I can see that. Yeah. Why people would say that. Yeah. And to me, from my small experience within my school, you know, we, we are we're using an SEL program called Second Step and we are embracing that within a larger culture of um of restorative justice practices. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying we're perfect and we're getting it right all the time. There's a lot more work to be done in some of those other big um, issues that you mentioned earlier, Tanya. But I think that's where it gets convoluted is that SEL, if it's implemented poorly, kind of gets convoluted with like the PBIS when it comes to like the rules. And this is what you should do and what you shouldn't do. And Mm -hmm. that's not at the heart of what SEL really is if it's done well. So in this particular article, um, Dr. Simmons mentions some strategies for teaching fearless SEL. And so these are kind of some positive action steps that if you are involved in some sort of SEL planning or committee at your school, you can make sure that these things are in place as well as some of the other steps. Uh, Provide students with opportunities to reflect on identity and equity to build self-awareness. So it's not about, you know, conforming yourself to a specific protocol. It's about understanding yourself within the larger system. Um, Enhance relationship skills through debate. I think that's huge. Our students need to know how to debate with each other in a positive way. Just because you don't agree doesn't mean, you know, it's bad or good. And in the elementary school, that that's that's a huge that's huge skills. Yeah. 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 Um develop responsible decision making skills through community-based projects and I like this emphasis on community, understanding what is the community need. And that really, especially for elementary kids, I think when they see their role within the community and how they can positively affect the community, that's huge. 
use current topics to foster social awareness. Wow, there's <laughs> wow. so much to talk about there. Yeah. And then explore different expectations for self-management. And I think the key word there is different expectations for self-management. And this is another thing that I think, you know, a lot of people, when they hear this term, and Tanya and I talked about this a little off mic, managing emotions, there's a negative connotation that goes with it. And I understand why. Mm-hmm. I completely understand because I think managing emotions as a as a term has been come to believe I need to make my emotions fit in with whatever society I'm trying to fit in with which oftentimes in school we're mm-hmm. talking about white centered education yeah so i think if we think about managing emotions in the broader definition of understanding your emotions well i i don't like the word managing yeah. i don't like the term managing emotions either and then we talked a little bit about this off mic that Mindfulness, when you talk about mindfulness and one of the key elements of mindfulness is, and I've never heard it said managing emotions, but is recognizing, acknowledging emotions and not letting those emotions drive your actions or reactions. But see, I think many would argue even with that, Tanya, because I think a lot of people say, well, it's justifiable that I'm angry. And so why am I not allowed to react from that anger? Well, <laughs> that's where I, and this is where, you know, my privilege and mm-hmm. my white centered music edu- or education in general shines through. And the fact that I, I don't necessarily have that experience of this like righteous indignation of like, I'm so angry because all of this harm has been done to me because it hasn't been. So right. I need to take a step back and understand from my students that they have some things to be really, really angry and, about. And justifiably and so. And so. I, uh, yeah. So I guess I'm just, I'm pushing back on like what managing emotions means in the term of like even, yeah, some of my emotions are going to drive my decisions, but you also have to understand how your decisions affect other people. Right. And it's not that emotions can't be a part of decisions by any means, but in the moment is when, when I'm thinking about mindfulness, it's helps you um, regulate like, do you want to act out of anger, for example, in that moment, understanding that it's not going to, the consequences are not going to be good for you or anybody. Right. right? And like what you just mentioned about acting out of anger and, and and it's being justifiable. I, I get that. Right, I get right. that. I have had moments in the last school year where I have had to sequester myself and go, you know what? I just got to sit with this and get over it before <laughs> I do something that'll like, you know, harm me and other people's feelings. And yeah. and that, I guess, is part of, quote, managing emotions. But Personally, mindfulness has given me, and I'm not saying it's a cure-all by any means, mindfulness has given me more of the space to really be able to hit the pause button and go, okay, I notice I'm enraged and I <laughs> could scream and yell and burn things down. I I, I have more of a, um, it, it takes me less time to hit the pause button than before I included mindfulness in my, my life. But totally. that's a whole other, you know, we well, could talk I think, a lot about again, that. Again, for me, for helping students understand it, it's it's not about, again, ignoring your emotions. And it's not even about not allowing yourself to react to those emotions because you are. That's how we're human. That's what we do. But it's understanding how your reactions fit into the community. Because if SEL is done well, so much of it is understanding your place in the community right and how you belong well and then we'll get to this when we talk about chapters three and four because i keep coming as i look at this list of things um of these strategies something that i think is so far missing in um everything i've read including this book is developmentally appropriateness yeah so i understand that this book is aimed towards secondary students and secondary teachers um, what I think we need on top of it is, okay, so I'm a grown woman and I was talking about being able to like notice my emotions and not act out of a place of anger or hurt or, or, you know, being able to just, um, understand that. What do I expect of a seven-year-old? Right. What do we expect of an eight-year-old, especially when they don't know, 
when they their experiences if their experiences have been through a place of trauma like of course this is going to be a huge obstacle right and this is where I think you know we can rely on whatever school-based practices are going on because we as music educators with the amount of time we see our students and how little we see our students we can't I mean, we could try, but I don't think it's it's realistic to expect us to be the sole implementers of SEL. Oh, in but our no, school. no, and that's why I hope I, I was you know hoping that reading this book would talk about how it can be woven into. Right. And I the think then that depends on, like I said, in my school we are actually using the second step program now. Have I really made it? super you know explicit for my students that I'm weaving some of these things in not as much as it should admittedly so this is where I'm trying to wrap my head around okay just a kind of a broader sense of what is SEL what is SEL not and then being able to take those strategies myself you know and admittedly you know this is we've only read through chapters three and four so hopefully some of these things will start to come across in the second half of the book. Yeah, and looking ahead in the second half of the book, I noticed that there's some very specific activities and lessons that you take kids through right. to help. Um, and again, I, I keep thinking about, as I'm looking at some of these, like um, identifying emotions in music. I, I mean, there might be more that's needed depending on your population. I there, There's something... You can't necessarily expect that kids are going to open up and, um, right. you know, well, this is where pour I think out their, their innermost emotions in the music room. And, I mean, potentially not in the music room if we're all on a cart. And that adds a different, another layer. <laughs> another layer of right. And we really, it's taking all of this in the context of, of COVID times. Yeah. I do keep thinking about, like you mentioned in the Strategies for Teaching Fearless SEL, there was that point about develop responsible decision-making skills through community-based projects. Community-based projects, brilliant, beautiful thing. And I'm thinking, how are we doing community-based projects when we can't be next to somebody? Right. Like, of course, there's the computer, there's these other things, but it just, it looks so different and we haven't, as a school community, at least in my world, we haven't had experiences of community-based projects that don't involve physical closeness. I know. And that's huge. I think there's going to be a lot of interesting research that comes out of these COVID times about the lack of, of physical proximity, you know, being close to And what it to does to one's and mental health. what it health. does to our, to our brains. I mean, I think we know, but I think now we're going to have some Well, data. and to see our elementary school-aged kids and what that does to them over the long haul. And now I'm getting really feeling a little negative about it all. Okay. But yeah, let's, let's get dig back in. to the book, okay. specifically chapters three and four. And then these will be kind of some of our larger things, takeaways when we finish the whole book, I think, mm -hmm. to bring it to modern times. So chapter three specifically addresses bullying in the music classroom. And, you know, at first I was like, really? A whole chapter on this? But they kind of highlight the reason why that's so important because I think, and I'm guilty of this too, you know, I've, I've convinced myself and probably my students that, well, here at music, we all get along and we're happily making music. And, you know, if you have done all of the work to build community, hopefully you're not seeing a lot of overt bullying. But I think what this chapter highlighted for me were some examples of some of the way bullying, bullying, rears its head in ways that aren't so overt right and like we had mentioned before it really focuses on kids in in high school yeah this one i think was a little bit harder for me to translate as, as far as elementary music the bullying teacher, i i was thinking about how much transfers so when you get a classroom of kids they've already established the way they operate in their classroom and i know that many of you understand this, that you notice that we have certain dynamics that go on from some homerooms that are totally different from other homerooms. Yeah. And, and it's a very interesting thing that I don't know how to change, that you have social structures, stru structures in place from homerooms that don't change. They bring it to you when they come into the music room or when you are teaching them. So if you have a hierarchy of kids, you know, if you have like a a school bully or a classroom bully, 
that it's not that they turn it off when they walk into your room. No. And it's not something, and this is where it, it's very different teaching in elementary school than teaching in a high school. And as I'm looking at this book, that those are my questions that keep popping up. Like, well, this is all fine and good in the band room. And then these kids go off and they have other experiences in, in classrooms. But it's not, not the same as being in a homeroom in an elementary school where they try to build a community in that homeroom and as the music teacher you kind of get what has happened i mean you have what has happened in their yeah in their classroom and not to say that you can't adjust things in your music room it depends on how much time you see them if you're only seeing that group of kids once a week maybe twice a week are you going to be and i'm not saying let the kids bully by any means right i'm saying how much can you do also you're expected to teach music can't forget about that how much can you do to to affect that kind of um social interactions that are going on i'm thinking specifically about like a bully in our elementary school that is not there any longer and from second grade all the way through sixth grade this individual was like known as the bully, the one who cajoled kids into doing, you know, making bad choices. And it didn't, it was a problem. It was a problem in art, music, PE, the classroom, the playground, the lunchroom. And as much as we tried to intervene, and when I say we, I mean all the teachers, every year a new classroom teacher was trying to talk to family members and and trying to help this child um, it just didn't stop. Yeah. And from what I understand, this child now in high school, it, it's still an issue. It's still happening. Yeah. So, and, and it's not, at that point, I guess it's not that you can um, affect the, the bully as much as what do you do about the, the, the kids who are affected by the victims. And there's right. a whole, am I in the right chapter? Okay. Follow up for bullies and follow up for victims so there's an interesting section in chapter three about how to help bullying prevention programming often requires that perpetuators of bullying behavior be targeted for individual interventions um and then there's a list of you know checking in possible professional referral and you and i talked about this a little bit off mic it's mentioned a lot in this chapter about how you need to go back to the classroom and the school rules right And I think, again, it's that negative connotation of rules, which I understand. I like to reframe rules, at least in my own classroom, as more like norms or expectations and state them positively. You know, we, it's, it's impossible to live in a society without rules. I mean, Mm -hmm. that is, rules are there. Rules are there so we can all be, you know, for, for equity, supposedly. The problem is when rules are you know, enforced in a way that's not equitable, which we know happens all the time. Or when, yeah, when rules are created in a way that's not equitable. And there right. we go back to including cultural responsiveness, right? Yeah. So in one of the articles that mentioned um, hair braiding as a way to, um, as a way to cope. Right. Right. And so making a rule about not being distracted by that could be very harmful to students who like, that's one of their, their ways to, to cope. Right. I think, yeah, it, in those situations, oh, and we should mention which, what article it is. I had it up so we can yeah. mention it. It's called When SEL is Used as Another Form of Policing. Mm-hmm. And um, there's not a single author, but it says it's from Communities for Just Schools Fund. And it was an interesting read, and there were things in there that I definitely agreed with, and there were some things that I thought, again, I think that this this article was written from a place of talking about poor SEL implementation rather than just SEL is bad. <laughs> no. Well, the title um, says it all exactly. when, when it's used as used another form, as a form. But I'm saying I think people have, have taken this article out of context and people have seen this article and, and said, okay, now we need to question everything about SEL. Well, questioning is good, I guess. It's just let's not write it off is my point. Mm-hmm. But speaking of like the hair braiding and like the coping skills, I think – In my opinion, and somebody might disagree with me on this, I mean, I think it's perfectly okay to have an expectation in your classroom that students keep their hands to themselves. Mm -hmm. But then the follow-up to that expectation is if you have students who are very visibly using hair braiding as a coping mechanism, you 
go to those students, you talk to those students and say, do you need some time? What do you need right now? Rather than just saying, no, you're not allowed to touch because that's my rule. Or on the other hand saying, oh yeah, do whatever you want. You Mm -hmm. know, like I think there's a gray area where you talk to the students and find out what they need. Because by talking to the students and saying, what do you need? Are you upset? Is, you know, something going on if you're using some just kind of open-ending questioning and you find out that the kids are like, oh, we're fine. We were just playing around. Mm -hmm. Well, then come back into the music-making activity. Well, yeah. And like you and I have talked about this hair braiding thing, and I had mentioned that this has not been, the hair braiding specifically has been an issue in my room, but not among black students. Right. Among, honestly, white girls. Yep. And I have used... (laughs) This, to me, is a sign when I see the hair braiding between, you know, little third-year-old, third-grade white girls, what I take that is, Tanya, you are talking too much. You are doing the sage on a stage too much. (laughs) Let's get moving. Yeah. Because they are, from everything that I've observed in my experiences, these third-grade white girls are not... They're not doing a comforting thing. They're doing a, I'm bored with this TV program thing. I'm going to braid my friend's hair. Right. So I just take that as a sign to me. <laughs> Moving like, on. Stop talking. <laughs> get on with the music making. You're boring them. Yeah. So yeah. that's my takeaway. But, you know, that's just in my little world. Right, right. Yeah, and that's, I mean, you have to just know your students and as best as you can. And then just talk and ask questions, I think. And they talk about more of this in in chapter four. But um, just before we move on for, from chapter three, I also want to mention it does talk a lot about um, gender roles within the music classroom. Yeah, and I, I found this that to be interesting. Very interesting. Again, especially from, you know, I think this is this is written from and understandably, you know, more of a secondary position as far as um, instrument and, and the, the stereotypical roles of instruments in a in a gender conforming way, um, which we as elementary music teachers who don't teach band or orchestra, I know some elementary music teachers do, but neither Tanya or I do. This isn't something we have to deal with in this way, but it definitely made me reflect on gender roles in my classroom, especially when we're doing singing games. And this is something I've been reflecting on for a while that, you know, I no longer have any sort of singing games where I require all the boys to be on one side, all the girls to be on the other. Mm -hmm. But, you know, other things, just, just thinking about I don't know, the roles in which students play in my class, like if we're doing an orph ensemble, is it more likely that the boys are going to play the bass bars? And the yeah, no, I was trying to think about that too. And I, I was thinking about ranges of instruments. Yeah. And as I think back, honestly, I've had more boys enamored with glockenspiels. Yeah. Um, so I, I don't think that there is that attachment. Right. Everybody loves the bass bars. Yeah. No matter who they are. Yeah. So I haven't seen that play out. Then again, I don't use the instruments as much as say an ORF teacher does. So maybe they can, there are people who can really speak to that, but I've not seen that kind of like gender identification with specific instruments in the elementary music classroom. Right. But I understand what's being said, um, with, you know, maybe in secondary school it's and I've seen in our school um like boys who choose to play the flute girls who are playing low brass and it's not as far as I've known it's not been an issue yeah I feel like it's probably going to be an issue as they get older and after they've gone through puberty and you know I think I feel like those issues are going to come to a head more in secondary um for me I was thinking too also just about kind of the the role of a boy in an elementary music classroom and how often I've heard, you know, oh, well, the boys must not like music as much as the girls, you know, and that stereotypical view of, of, of girls buying into elementary music more than boys. Um, and, and is there any way that I've perpetuated that or what have I done to specifically combat that? I uh, mean, and I've seen it in my elementary choir. I get way more girls than boys. Well, I think this is where we could break off and have a whole other hour discussion about singing ranges yeah, and how as Kodai teachers, we really have been trained to think of a beautiful singing voice. Um, and I'm not saying this is, this is because Zoltan Kodai himself, like nailed, like, yeah. Um, It's perpetuated through many different lenses. It is perpetuated during, through many different lenses. And I think us as Kodai educators, there's a bigger talk to be had here. Yeah. But what if we considered beautiful singing voices to be, 
you know, a different range. Mm -hmm. If we considered more choices as what is a beautiful sound. And um, that being said, the reason for the expectation of it, children's voices singing in a higher range is because that's physically where their vocal cords are. So if you've ever been to um, a concert or, you know, seen a bunch of kids singing and they're yelling at you, it's because they cannot physically sing those notes. Right. And I am a proponent of, especially with kindergarten, first grade, second grade, third grade, I mean, pretty much until puberty happens that the child's voice lies, you know, in order for them to be truly singing notes that are discernible from each other, it does lie in that upper that upper register. Right. They cannot sing around middle C. They'll start talking. They'll start yelling. They'll start, you know, volume is not their thing either. If you want to hear children's choirs sing louder, add more children. Right. Don't ask them to sing louder. And and I know I know that that's probably going to be more of an issue as we, you know, go along through this lens of what we should be do- doing culturally. Right. But as in my experience, if you want to hear them sing for real and not talk. Tunefully. It, it, tunefully. If yeah. tuneful singing for children does exist up there. So that I was really interested that in this chapter where he's talking about gender and instruments, that he didn't bring it over into the choir room. I know. Again, because I thought there's yeah. a lot to be said for that. Yeah. Because I know that there are students who um, are singing. Uh, there's there's a transgendered issue going on, mm-hmm. and and of students who are who are trans who want to be in the soprano section, uh, or who but want to be. Their voice might not be there. Right. It's very interesting because in my my experience watching choir through my son's experience who is now in high school, in both middle school and in high school, there have been members of the choirs that he's been in who are trans and who are singing in a different section, but but very well. Right. So I guess, yeah, I mean, that's a bigger discussion for, for the choir community, which I'm not a big part of as far as, like, do your does your choir parts doesn't, doesn't necessarily have to reflect your uh, your gender. Right. I mean, yeah, that's a big topic. And socially, what is that? What is how's the rest of the choir um, accept? Yeah. And react? Yeah. I think that's that requires a lot of community building and, and, you know, within your choir and within your school as a whole. So, yeah. Anyways. Anyways. um, (laughs) I mean, this book, it it could have been like another 800 pages with all of of this other stuff. Yeah. And again, I understand, you know, it's. And this is something that I had seen, you know, people mention that, you know, this book is really written more from the lens of a secondary instrumental teacher, and I, I definitely see that, but mm-hmm. that doesn't mean I'm discounting reading it. I think no. there's definitely things I'm taking away. And we knew that when we, we jumped into yeah. this. Um, yeah. But I will... I almost want there to be like a supplement I, I do. For I, elementary, I specifically. I wish there were a supplement for elementary. Um, and maybe now's the time, or not, I don't know, to say the thing that I was thinking about... After reading chapters three and four last last night, I was thinking a lot about all this because I keep having to reframe. Okay, what about in the elementary music room? How does that look? Okay, what yeah. about what I had said and turned to my husband last night and said, "I don't see my students in this book. I don't see myself in this book, but I just need to just reframe, just constantly." All right, let's talk about chapter four. <laughs> let's talk about <laughs> chapter four. So, I mean, this one. I mean, the title is Music Educators Are Not Counselors, and I get it, and I understand, you know, it's talking about how how we're not here to to impart advice, we're not here to, to necessarily explicitly lead the students on one path or the other, but I think it's just so important to remember, you know, that... <laughs> All, all teachers are counselors in a way. I mean, right. I think you can't but, get away from that. But I think it's just defining what that After means. every half page, it says, and don't give advice. And don't give advice. And remember, don't give advice. But don't give and, advice. And that I do understand and I appreciate because there have been times where I have been with a student and, of course, you're tempted to give advice because you're older and you have more life experience and maybe even you have very specific experience that relates to this child. 
Um, and I've had to take a step back and go, okay, you know, I just, I need to listen. I mean, that's really, to me, the big takeaway from this chapter is just the importance of listening, 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 listening. Can I quote from the book? Yes. About a facilitative teacher. Yes. Is the goal of a facilitative teacher. A teacher who is facilitative, and this is on page 80, if you want to sing along. A teacher who is facilitative changes the role of teacher to guide, coach, and advisor, which is another thing that I went in the elementary classroom. I'm not, well, maybe, yeah. All right, encourages student ownership and empowerment, of course. Uh, instills a natural discussion and decision-making process. Uses challenges as opportunities. Transports the students successfully along learning levels from knowledge slash comprehension to application, evaluation through student-chosen activities, projects, and programs, and demonstrates using academic content areas to create shareable students' products. And I should mention that within this book, that was taken from um, other, another book or article, uh, Lamb and Duckenfield, 2002, page 8. So anyway. Um, it's but a quote within a quote. It's a quote within a quote. Yep. And uh, a, a lot of what I was thinking, again, you know, for this really to work is I feel like I myself need a lot more education in trauma-informed teaching and understanding. Mm-hmm. Um, because, again, in my own situation, um, working in a Title I school, I have a lot of students. I mean, we all do. But I, I know in my, my situation, I have a lot of students coming from high levels of trauma. And for me to to listen in a way that I guess is most productive. Well, I don't know. That sounds weird. Listen in a way that's productive. I guess just for me to have better understanding, I personally need more of that. Yeah. Well, in reading this list, I mean, and this is all things that we aim for anyhow, but I'm thinking, um, how, and how to make this work within a music curriculum. Like, are we going to still teach music? Um, right. <laughs> For me, these are a lot of those side conversations that happen after music class. Right. And you I know what? To... I'm going to correct myself. I just said, is this how are we still going to teach music? Well, are we going to learn music? And what music yeah. are we going to learn? And how much, is, especially in an elementary music room, um, I'm specifically thinking about uh, the transports, the students successfully along. Oh, that student chosen activities, projects, and programs, like that's a whole other thing too. How much decision making is happening in your music class? And I don't know. It's it's different in an elementary music classroom. Mm-hmm. You you can't leave most of the decisions even, depending right. on the grade level, right? Right. I could see in a fifth grade classroom doing project-based or problem-based learning primarily. I could see that working. But when we're talking about the itty-bitties, when we're talking about kindergarten, first grade, um, you know, there's choices for sure to give them ownership. But you know, there's a lot of decision-making that's going to be happening from the teacher. Right. And, yeah, that's just a natural part of child development, too. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so I was really looking at this of the lens of this applies mostly to me, this idea of, kind of listening and working with students um, through, you know, kind of that restorative justice practice. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, to me, it really mirrored what I understand restorative justice to be. It talks about on page 82, the process counselors use without offering advice involves a cycle of, one, assessing students' challenges. So that's that what happened piece. Um, two, exploring the issue more deeply through conversation. You know, tell me more. Three, developing an understanding and empathy for the situation. Again, still listening. Tell me more. What's what's really going on? And then number four, having the student establish goals. And then finally, number five, evaluating the success of the student-created intervention based on the goals. So, you know, if I have students who have a conflict with each other or with me, and I've had a restorative justice conference with them, whether it's just a very informal one quickly in the hallway, okay, what just happened in music class? Let's work this out. Or a bigger, more formal conference, that's really the steps that it takes. Yeah. And as reading, while I was reading this, I kept thinking, when is this happening? 
is this happening in the 30 seconds between me having the class exit and the, right. or is, is this happening on the side of the room while everybody else like runs amok? Where is this, is this happening? When is this happening? It, it depends on the situation because I know exactly what you're talking about. And there's times I've had very successful short restorative justice conferences. Like, for example, oftentimes um, I have conflicts. Last year I would walk third graders to lunch that was part of our schedule uh-huh. was that they had specials and then they had lunch and then it was also my lunch time so because it was the teachers planning whatever we were asked to take them to lunch okay fine uh-huh. so I would have conflicts in the hall and as the students were lining up in the cafeteria because that's a long time for them to wait and they would get frustrated and uh-huh. things would happen so I had a lot of practice with these little mini restorative justice conferences then yeah and it was just a matter of pulling kids off to the side while the other kids are standing in line that can't Always no, and I've room. had I've had several of those as yeah. well, but sometimes there's consequences that come with that. Well, like yeah, when I hold kids, and then the the homeroom teacher is annoyed because they need to be in math right now. Oh, and I, well, you know, yeah, there's been is, that kind of thing. Right. This to me is happening more. Um, like I said, when they're waiting for lunch. Right. Yeah. In those situations, I always ask the teacher. I said there was a conflict that happened. Mm-hmm. I have some time to talk to these students now. Would you like me to talk to these students now or later? Yeah. Because some classroom teachers are like, no, I'd nip it in the bud. I want you to talk to them now. Right. I don't want this to carry over to my class. Some classroom teachers will be like, no, we really need yes. to move on. And I usually do ask that. Yeah. Um, and it's very, it, it's interesting how you said like classroom teachers are all different. I have, I remember one classroom teacher. She would be like, don't talk to me right now about what just happened in music go work this out with Miss Lejeune which on the one hand was a little annoying because I was like okay well here's my kindergartner standing in line but I don't really I can't uh, yeah so that's this is the nature of the beast when you teach elementary music and you're switching kids every 45 minutes right you know so I I appreciate let's get this figured out right now but I I'm on (laughs) I'm on I had a lot of lunchtime and recess time conversations with students because I was lucky enough last year that my planning and lunchtime spanned pretty much almost every grade level's lunch and recess. That is awesome. Um, so yes, it took time out of my day to go and do that. And I couldn't always do that depending on if I had to be in another meeting or not. Yeah. But more times than not, I was able to talk to the classroom teacher, talk to the students, and find a time where I could either pull them from their class or, and oftentimes I would give students a choice if it was going to be lunch or recess, I would let them choose. Do you want to bring your lunch to my class? Because, you know, pulling kids out of recess is a very controversial subject as well. Or I would go out to recess and just kind of pull them off to the side. I wouldn't Mm -hmm. actually pull them into the building. I would have the conversation with them outside. And that also seemed to be less threatening to the students and, and, and that's feel. so good that you had that time because I did have I'm thinking last year I had students that would come to me um, during their recess or their lunch time and we would try to work things out but I had a first grade class like right then yeah too so you can't so always do it you can't always that. do that but and then you know in that case too I also had very supportive um, assistant principal and in our school we have a restorative justice coordinator and a halftime SEL teacher so if I went to those those adults and said, hey, I'm, you know, this happened in my class or I need to follow up with so-and-so about something, they would cover my class so I could have those conversations. Yeah. That happened multiple times. So that was also, you know, just an example of my school attempting to, again, we don't always get it right, but come together as a community and putting, you know, SEL and, you know, mental health for our students in general at the forefront of everything. We and do. you know what? And that goes back to this whole, what we mentioned at the very beginning from this article about applying an equity lens to social, emotional, and academic development is that all these barriers, those, you know, all of these things that we can use to overcome these, these barriers by having full time, yeah. um, you know, school psychologist or social worker. And I am lucky in my building that we have a a full-time counselor, social worker. And yeah, she was very helpful in a lot of those times. But to have all of those things in place that you just mentioned, what does it take for a school to get that? It takes them to... Money, money, money. Well, it takes (laughs) takes money, money, money. But in order for a a school to rate to get all those things, they have to first show huge need yeah and the bottom line is is money 
Um, and how I think all schools need all of those things in place. This is true. Not just let's wait until everything is an S show and then let's pull in all of these extra resources to try to pull us out of whatever hole we're in. But what if schools had all of these things already in place, especially when we know of once we go back to school full time, what, what is that going to look like? Right. I mean, so much trauma. I just, I don't, oh. All right, not to be negative. Let's no, let's okay. keep on trucking on with well, chapter four. You know, and a lot of chapter four, I think, again, was written more from the lens of a secondary teacher where kids are coming to you. They're saying, hey, can I come in and hang out in your room during my lunchtime and let me tell you all these things that are going on for me? I will say that doesn't happen a lot in my world uh, of being an elementary teacher, and I think that comes with the development of the child, where they're Mm -hmm. at, and also just how well students know me. It Mm -hmm. happens the longer I'm in a school and the better I know the kids. I do have a couple of older students who would ask to come and have lunch in my room. Yeah. And they wouldn't necessarily tell me what was going on with them, but that was okay. They just felt like they needed to have a place. Right. And I would just often say, do you want to talk about something? Is there anything you want me to hear? And, you know, if if not, that's okay. Right. And then, you know, sometimes they would, sometimes they wouldn't. I don't know. Have you had this experience? Yes. And I mean, I was thinking back to my own high school days because I was one of those kids that ate lunch in the choir room and spent all my time in the choir room. Oh, yeah. Even when I didn't have class. And, yeah, I was... My my experience teaching elementary school is that I do have kids who want to talk to me and want to come to me, but inevitably it's almost always when they are walking into the room with their class Mm -hmm. and again and and you know you're you're torn because it's like well I guess I'm thrilled that I have that video set up for the first five minutes so kids will be occupied let's see if we can wrap this up like I I feel horribly guilty because I'm like oh here's a kid who will get comfort from me and has sought me out as they're walking in and you know they're they they need to talk well okay what about the other 32 over there um and this is elementary specific I have kids that come to me and because my lunchtime doesn't um, align with like hardly anybody it's always at a time when I'm supposed to be teaching right right so so what do you do well I try to spend a couple I do the best I can I try to have a couple of minutes where I'm listening and I'm keeping one eye on the group and you know and yeah, I, I have had to cut things short with the kid, like, oh, could you come and talk to me during your... But yeah. at the end of the school day, and usually they, they can't, or, oh, it's 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 a challenge. And like you were saying, we need this book written specifically for elementary and talking about those kinds of challenges. Right, yeah, because our schedule often doesn't allow us to... Yeah, and until elementary music teachers are looked at as not just a planning time, I really don't see yeah. how that's going to be something that we can um, improve upon unless your staff is I don't know I I don't know what the answer is obviously Um, and I think that this is going to be more and more of okay what could happen okay well you could offer a safe space for students uh, during if you don't have a class during their their lunch or recess um I think I had mentioned before I had a fifth grader who was coming to me and wanting to share music and yeah and that was awesome and I was thinking of building upon that and then we went into lockdown mode um so you you want to cultivate community in your music room like that but when you teach the whole school it's just a little trickier yeah yeah and I think this is also a time where um implementing restorative circles proactive restorative circles could help too because if you have a particularly um, needy group of students as far as wanting to express emotions and you feel like well we're not gonna be able to get to the music making until we address some of these other issues you know that's when those having those those circle times even if there's really only one or two students who who share at least you've given them that opportunity you've given all students the opportunity they might not take it to, to share something that's going on, whether it's specifically related to an event that happened in their classroom five minutes before they walked in the door, or just a way for them to say what their favorite flavor of ice cream is. Sometimes kids just want to be heard. 
right. by a new adult. In that yeah, place, and then you know? last year especially, because I had some restorative practice training, that was the first year where I really did implement circles in every single class. And the thing, like you were mentioning about that, is that you really do have to let go of some of that music curriculum once. Like, oh, we got to get to this. Because I will admit that... Um, when I started doing it with every class, I was getting antsy sitting in the circle going, oh my gosh, we still need to do this activity and we don't know this new song and I wanted to add some instruments to like, I I get anxious. Right. Like, oh yeah, that's all us. And I that. start freaking out about like, okay, can we make music now? But it's important because they won't be able to really come together and make music if there's stuff going on that they need to get out. Exactly. And I think in the coming school year and years could be we as music educators have to understand more and more that we're going to have to be letting go of some of our curriculum. Yep. Not just because there's been months of them not being in in a group music making place, but also because there's going to be some things that need to be worked out socially, emotionally. Oh my goodness, that yeah, we're going to have to let go. Totally. And now it's time to talk about knowing better and doing better. This is a segment that we've started this summer where we are reevaluating some of our practices and coming up with different, better choices. So, Tanya. Yes. What are you knowing better and doing better okay, these days? Okay, you feel free to chime in okay. and hold me back because... <laughs> I'm going to hold you back. All right, let's talk about chopsticks. Yep. All right, maybe, maybe you've seen mention in some of the music education Facebook groups, specifically elementary music education Facebook groups, of the use of chopsticks as rhythm sticks. Where A lot of people right now are thinking about making kits, individual kits for students so that they do not have to touch classroom instruments. So everyone has their own self-contained thing that they can use at a desk. And among one of the items that people keep bringing up is something to play rhythms with, sticks. So chopsticks has come up. I, mea culpa, right now, I have done this in the past. Yeah. I have used chopsticks. I have from Oriental Trading, from years and years ago, a bunch of chopsticks that I have used, right? And it has come up through some members of Decolonizing the Music Room that this is not a practice that we should continue, that it is culturally insensitive, and it is offensive to some Asian communities. Now, let's, it's not a monolith. Like some, you might speak to some Asian people who say, I don't see a problem. And you might speak to others who say, yes, that's definitely culturally disrespectful. Let's not do it. Asia is comprised comprised of like 50 countries, people. So you can't say, well, I talked to my one friend from Taiwan who says this, and then my other friend from Korea who says that. When someone of a specific culture tells you this practice is culturally irresponsible and and offensive, then you stop doing that and you stop defending it and you stop trying to reframe it from your own cultural lens. And, you know, those of you who have read all of these things, I, I will tell you that this was a rabbit hole that I went down, what was it, last week? And I looked at like so many of the groups because I was very interested to see how music educators were responding and reacting. And I am so very depressed and disappointed. I mean, not incredibly shocked, shocked, but that there was only one music group, and this includes our Music Teacher Coffee Talk page on yep. Facebook. There was only one group that dealt with it really quickly and said, oh, I didn't know that. Thanks for sharing. What else could we use? And then the conversation went on to let's cut dowels. Let's use pencils. Let's do right. this. Um, so It's the argument part that just... Yeah, yeah so I, would, I don't want to talk about whether or not we should use chopsticks. We should not. And I think that it's very clear that when someone from from a culture tells you that it's not okay, then you take that at face value and you go, okay, not okay. Now what am I going to do? What really was distressing was seeing 
people argue about it yeah. who don't have any experience with the with the culture and seeing people put up defenses and seeing the willful ignorance yep. of cultural understanding from someone within that culture. So, um for me it always comes back to okay if you're if your default is i'm going to post something on social media that defends not even what i've done in the past but defends my continuing to do this practice even if one person says to you i mean i I put it in this way that if you were in your classroom face to face with your student and you had a student come up to you in person and say i find this offensive because blah 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 could we please do this instead I mean, first of all, that would be amazing, especially in an elementary class if you had a student who could articulate it that way. But let's just say that you did. And then you look that student in the face and you say, no, we're going to keep doing it because of blah, blah, blah. I highly doubt anyone who is so quick to post their defensiveness and their fragility on social media would actually do that face to face with a person, especially a student. Right. So if I just I just say that for myself, but I say that for anyone else who might need to hear it. Right. Oh, Think and then about they, how you yeah. would say it face-to-face before you type it. And I read some comments of people saying, well, I've done this, and I never had a... And, and I have um, Korean families or, or Chinese families who have never said anything to me. That, that doesn't make that it doesn't okay. That doesn't make it okay. Right. You know, I, it's very possible especially elementary age children who have a problem with it or see that there's an issue with it and are are not going to mention it because you're the teacher, right. right? And because that puts them on the spot and they're really sticking their neck out. And a seven-year-old, an eight-year-old, are they going to do yeah, that? It's likely not going to happen. It's likely not going to happen. So please be more sensitive um, and understanding. And uh, what I, like, like I I'm sorry. I'm very fired up, so I got to, like, focus in on really this idea that I have been – I've had some training on that I keep coming back to over and over again. Intent does not equal impact. Yes. And I have seen on Facebook – there was somebody – just two days ago on on a Facebook group who said, oh, well, as far as I'm concerned, intent is everything. So if you don't mean to be offensive, then you're good. No. And they didn't say, if you don't mean, I I put that in. So if somebody with big old boots steps on your foot, they maybe didn't see you there, maybe they tripped, whatever. That does not mean that there's not pain that has resulted from that, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So when you know you have caused pain, when you know that you have stepped on someone's foot, whatever the reason, because you were ignorant, because you weren't paying attention, because whatever, it doesn't matter. You've caused pain and and you need to do better after that. You need to say, um, oh my gosh, I'm sorry. I didn't know. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to wear these boots from now on, or right. I'm not going to step so close I'm to people from now. I'm going to be aware of my I'm gonna, Yes. I'm going to be aware of my everything. Um, so that was a problem that I was seeing is that people would say well I didn't mean to do this so I'm okay so it's all right I there's no there's no blame there's no thing I need to change here um and then the other thing that was very distressing is that within some of these conversations I saw a lot of willful ignorance I saw a lot of people who were throwing up defenses with their like deer in the headlights but I didn't know this or tell me more or but why is it offensive like oh my gosh you could take 10 seconds and open another tab and search. Google and search. Like, so if you're going to say, but but why is it offensive? All you're doing is you're saying, hey, person who's telling me this stuff, I don't believe you. Show me proof, which is and we've so said privileged. This about Facebook specifically, that if you're in a Facebook group, whether it's music education related or not, there is a search bar, whether it's about a specific song that might be harmful or use of chopsticks all you have to do is type in the search bar chopsticks and you're going to see multiple posts that include links to articles you don't Mm -hmm. need to ask that question but why if you're about to ask that question but why is this harmful please search first Mm -hmm. please search first and even after you've searched if you haven't found anything within the facebook hey hop over to google yeah exactly search there because you're likely going to find a lot of stuff two days ago i was looking at um one of the elementary music teacher groups and someone who was like um this is my very first post they brought that 
up about, I'm going to use chopsticks for my rhythm kiss. What is everyone else doing? And <laughs> Oh, man. Yeah, I kind of felt, I felt a smidge bad because there were people who went, um, no, go look it up. Yeah. No, don't do that. Been there, done that. And, and then yeah. that whole conversation just revved up again where you get people jumping on um, saying, oh, well, you know, maybe it's okay. Um, we had a lot of people who were equating use of chopsticks as to Western European, uh, Western eating utensils. Like, oh, but we use spoons. Oh, but we could use forks. Oh, but if I took two knives and I, then no one had a, it's not the same. It's not the same. Read the articles. So go Google it. And I don't know, Carrie, if you want to cut a lot of this out, because I just, I would understand. But the whole chopsticks um, issue, there's so much to it beyond, should we use chopsticks? Well, no. But what I think it really highlighted was how far we have to go. Um, as white music educators, we are teachers, man. We need to be able to um, treat <laughs> treat others with respect and understand that not knowing doesn't mean you're in the clear. And when someone of a culture tells you this is offensive, this is cultural appropriation, there shouldn't be an argument that ensues after that you you don't have any business telling someone from another culture about their culture that's just i'm not going to curse now but i want to all right so anyway our no better do better don't use chopsticks listen to people of color indigenous people listen to people of cultures about their culture and believe what they are saying to you yes And now it's time for our CODA section, where we share something we've been enjoying now outside of the music room. Yes. Yeah. So what kind of uh, thing do you want to recommend? That you okay. Can... So it's super obvious for me to say that I've really been enjoying Hamilton on Disney+. What's this Plus. thing you what speak, is this speak What is this thing? <laughs> but that's obvious. So I want to say something else. Okay. What is this thing? Um, so on Disney+, Plus, as an extra within Hamilton, there is a roundtable discussion via Zoom or some sort of electronic means um, called Hamilton in Depth that you can watch, and it's 33 minutes. And it's really interesting because, obviously, it talks a little bit about kind of the behind-the-scenes stuff about the creation and, and the actual performance at that time. But what I found to be most interesting is is the relationship of Hamilton to the current um you know, predominance of the Black Lives Matter movement and just kind of a little bit more social awareness that we're starting to see. So it's a more recent conversation. Yes, exactly. And kind of bringing back, you know, some of those amazing, you know, I I think Hamilton just became kind of old hat for some of some of us who listened to the soundtrack at nauseum, you know, Mm -hmm. that we forget how groundbreaking it was. And then to to re-examine that through the lens of the Black Lives Matter movement was amazing. I mean, Philippa Sue had an amazing statement about, you know, just the current world and, and what she hopes that people get out of watching Hamilton again, mm-hmm. you know, through this lens. And just this whole idea of equity that, you know, yeah, you have to pay for Disney+, Plus, but that's so much different than paying $300 for a ticket to see it on mm-hmm. Broadway and how what a wonderful opportunity that this show that has so much importance socially and historically can be viewed to a mass audience now yeah so anyways it just gave me all the feels and I really enjoyed this particular um, interview roundtable discussion called Hamilton in depth on Disney plus very cool well I told you we just got Disney Plus yesterday. Oh, it happened. I broke down yes. and got Disney Plus. So. Did you watch Hamilton? Uh, no, because <laughs> I can't pry the Disney Plus out of my daughter's, Oh, yeah. you know, watching. There's a lot of good stuff on there. There's questionable things as well. And then so last night, my husband and son, they, they did the whole Pirates of the Caribbean. And, mm-hmm. uh, so I haven't had a chance to, uh, <laughs> to watch, Hamilton, watch again. Hamilton again. Um, yeah. All right. What's yours, Tanya? Okay. Well, um, I say all that, but actually I have been watching television because I have a lot of laundry to do. We just got back from a trip, and 
laundry equals watching stuff on my laptop. Nice. So there's this show out called Hollywood. And it's about post-World War II Hollywood. And it's um, it's mostly fiction, but there's some characters in it like Rock Hudson, um, who are, of course, you know, real life characters. But it is just, it's just so well done. And it ta- it's very interesting because it touches a lot on some of the issues that we hear about right now because there's definitely some um, some plot that revolves around including a the first black lead actress in a movie and, hmm. and things about that, a lot about homosexuality. Um, yeah. Oh, and if you're squeamish, if you're more of a closed-door romance person, um, maybe not for you. Being an older person, I'm often, like, surprised. I mean, not offended, but just like, oh, my, <laughs> I better turn down the sound because my children are in the other room. And there's, like, almost soft porn going on. But so, you know, <laughs> just know. understand that you know, there's some some sexual acts <laughs> okay. in the show, which is not a huge problem unless you're listening and you don't want other people to, to hear. Right. Yeah. Makes sense. And that's so, on Netflix? And that's on Netflix. Hollywood, okay. fun time. We've reached the double bar line. Thank you for listening to Music Teacher Coffee Talk. Show notes can be found at musicteachercoffeetalkpodcast.com. You can connect with us on Facebook and Instagram. Just look for Music Teacher Coffee Talk. If you enjoyed the show, please consider subscribing, rating, and leaving us a review on iTunes to help others find this podcast. In our next episode, we'll continue our discussion of music education and social-emotional learning, The Heart of Teaching Music by Scott in Edgar, uh, with conversation on chapters 5 and 6 of the book. Be sure to grab your cop- copy and read along with us. And until next time, this is Tanya. And this is Carrie, wishing you happy musicking. <laughs>